2: Streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, SolidarityBreakfast.org.au
1: Solidarity forever!
2: And
0: good morning. Good morning, listeners. This is Annie in the studios today for Solidarity Breakfast. And today we're going to hear from David Bradbury, a legendary Australian documentary filmmaker who started his career in 1972 with his Academy Award nominated Frontline, but more of that later. Uh, We're going to uh, hear from Marcus Harrington and his Rank and File. This is the week that was, Kevin's roundup of... uh, the uh, Misdemeanours of the Week and the welcome return of Noah Basile, who's come back from London. (laughs) Waging Peace. The latest film from legendary Australian filmmaker David Bradbury. Shot at the Canberra 2014 Peace Convergence. Waging Peace will be screening at the Nova Cinema, including Q&A with Bradbury. Thursday, March the 19th at 6pm. Bookings, trybooking.com. Waging Peace, March 19th, 6pm at Nova Cinema. A Wacker event. Wacker is a 3CR supporter. And uh, as I said, David Bradbury began his film career in 1972 with Frontline. He's made many films since then. And the one that we just advertised uh, is going to be shown on at it's, uh, November... Uh, Nova at the on the 9th of March. You can get tickets from uh, Try Booking. Uh, it should be a, a fascinating event. The uh, f- film that we're going to focus today or in the conversation that I had with David Bradbury was about his film Enemy Number One. He did a profile of the uh, legendary Australian journalist Wilfred Burchett. Now, Burchett was the first Western journalist into Hiroshima after the bomb. That uh, really put him on the map as a journalist, effectively. Uh, but his work reporting from the Northern, North Vietnam side of the US war in Vietnam gave him the title, The Man Who Reported, From the Other Side. I asked David Bradbury about Wilfred Burchett. Uh, I know that a lot of people are quite interested in this particular topic. You were quite famous for making a film called Public Enemy Number One. This, of course, is about a, a legendary uh, journalist, uh, Wilfred Burchett. Can you talk to that making yep. of that film?
5: <laughs>
4: uh, Annie, I could talk for for hours about dear Wilfred, uh, one of the most. Uh, Misunderstood and and maligned uh, figures of, of last century of Australia's history, and yet such an amazing, incredibly courageous and uh, and valiant uh, uh, humanist and uh, and citizen of the world, as he liked to call himself, and peace activist.
0: I found out that he came from incre- quite an impoverished background, so for him to have uh, reached his height these heights, it's quite extraordinary
4: it is i mean he um he, he he grew up uh he was in his teens in the depression the bank uh took away as the banksters the gangsters of today are doing with farmers and ordinary people's homes and so on so the people in victoria have got to cut off their gas and electricity because they can't pay their their rent or their mortgage or lose their house at all and and free through the winter Wilfred saw capitalism. And free market uh, economy, so-called, at its worst in the age of the depression, and he hit the road as a um, as a um, someone hiking around with his with his uh, swag and uh, sleeping under bridges and and asking at the door of people's places, could they do some farm work in return for a, a, a bit of bread and dripping, please, missus? And uh, to think that he went from that over to Europe on the eve of the of the Second World War and Nazi Germany and wrote letters back to I'm not sure if it was the AIDS then or the Argus that was in Melbourne newspaper saying about uh, uh, about that um, you know, war was coming and that Hitler was uh, a real fascist it was uh, and he helped smuggle Jews out of Germany and uh, and that was all pursued by uh, Robert Menzies the Prime Minister at the time and uh, um, Birchett then went on to become a correspondent in the Second World War in the, in the South Pacific, and he uh, was amongst the the first of about 240 journalists who were embedded that landed in Tokyo and were, uh, were, were marined or they were corralled at the um, military barracks in downtown Tokyo just three weeks after the first world atomic bomb was dropped. And Birchett determined that he would sneak away from the embedded journalists who were going to um, see the the Japanese emperor surrender on the board of the U.S. battleship Missouri, at which General MacArthur was studying his stuff and and proudly thumping his chest and saying, what a good boy am I. And um, Bert determined what the world really needed to find out and know was that first atomic bomb that had been dropped on Hiroshima and and Nagasaki. And so he caught an ordinary a train from the Tokyo train station dressed in American military fatigues, which was the uniform of foreign correspondents of the day. And he had in his backpack a, a a 45, which he wasn't going to do something like John Wayne or Ronald Reagan shoot himself out of if he was taken prisoner by the by the Japanese who were then beheading still and hanging uh, prisoners of war because they were so pissed off at the bomb being dropped and losing the war. And that and Wolfram didn't want to suffer a slow and agonising death with his fingernails ripped out or electrodes on his private parts and so on like that, or water tortured. And so he was going to shoot himself, basically, if he didn't get to Hiroshima. And he carried his hand, his typewriter, which is what he set down once he got to Hiroshima and he saw the, the vast devastation of what the bomb had done. And he was taken to a, a hospital by a local Japanese journalist who took him for a tour of the city and then ended up at the hospital and They saw people with their uh, were just in, in last stages before they died, and their hair was falling off their head kids and and women and civilians and so on because Hiroshima was in fact a civilian target like a lot of Iraq was in the, in the war that America targets uh, the, the scourge of sorrow of war that they it 's largely civilians that suffer at war rather than soldiers and and so on and um Burchett sat down after he'd seen the, been to the hospital and the and the and the Japanese uh, head of the hospital said to Birchett, Look I'm sorry I'm gonna to have to ask you to go because these people are very disturbed by your presence here. They're they're muttering amongst themselves and I I'm a Christian. I was educated in the United States and I know that on in war both sides do horrible things and we've no doubt done horrible things as well but we don't know how to treat these people at all. we don't know what, what what to do with whatever this bomb is that's brought to our our civilian population when we put an injection of of vitamin C into their skin, the skin rots away and um, and, and they still die anyway you've got to get people to, that know what to do with this poison and and come and help us in that and Bertrand went out to the um uh, a, a concrete pillar that had been knocked to the ground and, and he sat on that and brought out his little hermes. Manual typewriter and tapped out on the typewriter. I write this as a warning to the world, and that was what has convinced me that I have to continue to my dying days to be an anti-nuclear and anti-uranium mining activist. Because I went to the Peace Museum and I saw the the drawings that Birchett um, showed me of kids uh, crying out, when in they in in asked to, to do drawings that said. Mother, please get me water. They were kids that were exposed to the bomb on that fatal day of uh, of uh, the sixth of August, 1945, when the bomb was dropped. And Birchett they went went on to Vietnam to um, to cover the the Indochina War against the French, and then the Americans when they picked up the the uh, the, the batten and, and and ran a war of aggression against the Vietnamese and so on. That. Uh, killed millions and millions of vietnamese and poisoned them for a long time after with agent orange dropped just like they did with depleted uranium in iraq and afghanistan to this day virtue followed the war from the from the other side from the communist side and he's regarded as a traitor in australia by the conservative uh, press sir frank packer who was kerry packer's father and jamie packer's grandfather and um they ran you know, better lines in the newspapers about you know hanging Birchett because he was a traitor to Australia, because he was turning the other side of point of view to what was the American uh, propaganda-run side of the war. And, um, you know, I mean, if we live in a democracy and we say we want to have an objective assessment of, uh, of both sides of the argument, then Birchett had every right uh, to do that. And uh, they made up stories about Birchett torturing Australian prisoners of war in Korea, which was total bullshit, no evidence uh, based about to do that at all, and they basically hounded Burchett out of the country, and uh, and used Parliament and, and the right wing media to vilify Birchett and to say that he was a KGB agent and a, and a traitor and so on, which is a stigma that stuck to this day. And Birchett could never return to Australia and to a land that he loved and to smell the eucalypts and uh, and all the things that he wrote and uh, and used his typewriter. To, um, to make people aware, both in this country and and overseas, where he was much more appreciated and respected for telling the other side of the story, and uh, he couldn't come to Australia. Even when his father was dying, third-generation Australian, he couldn't come back to Australia. He'd lost his passport, and the Conservative governments refused to give him another passport. And, uh, yeah, so Birchett's one of my all-time heroes, and uh, and will be because of what he did... And, and what um, he wasn't able to, through the mainstream populist media, to be able to get out.
3: Here he comes. Go back to Russia! Go back to Russia! Go back to Russia! How do you react to statements that people call you a traitor? Well, my first uh, reaction is to ask him to say that in print and i'll sue them do you feel that you've been a traitor to the allies in this particular case i've certainly not been a traitor to the allies you're a complete and utter liar that is all you are oh, i've no doubt you've come along with the intention of saying that he called mr bircher the liar it was rather an unpleasant fight in here for a few moments you say you're not a communist, uh, where exactly do you stand politically? I stand, you know, as a journalist, I'm more independent than anybody in this room. Mr. Richard, you were once regarded as public enemy number one by the Americans. I know that a lot of emotions have been, uh, you know, worked up about uh, my, uh, well, uh, my activities over the past 20 years and so forth. But is it fair to say, do you think, that you were supporting the other side, the communist side? I certainly was with my articles. I mean, everything is on the record. A man is entitled to his opinions and to publish his opinions, and that a government has no right to deprive a citizen of his birthright. Welcome, Wilfred Burchett. Welcome your intention to get an inside story of those who have been faced with the alternative of fighting or dying. Welcome, dear guests, whom we are ready to tell what we have been doing to keep in check U.S. imperialism and its Pentagon general. People were being kidded along, conned, if you like, to go into a wider war. Western journalists accredited to the UN side were being lied to by the American public relations authorities. The journalists knew this, so they used to come uh, to me and ask, what did the American side propose today? What did the North Korean Chinese side propose today? I had the actual documents of what was being proposed, and very often these were completely contrary to what the journalists were being told. So
0: you actually met him? Yep, yep,
4: I went... uh I, we got ambushed together in Vietnam and Cambodia uh, when I was making a film about uh, that film, Public Enemy number 1, about Birch. And I went to Hiroshima on the bullet train with him, which took a long time in those tunnels to get uh, through it and to think that Birch was on a steam train back in 1945, chugging his way 400 miles inland to Hiroshima from Tokyo, with the Japanese Imperial Guard who knew that that day the surrender ceremony was being signed on board the U.S. battleship Missouri and that uh, the Japanese Emperor, who they would have given their lives for, was being humiliated by the Americans. Uh, that, that was um, an incredible journey to make to Hiroshima with Birchett and, and the, the bravery that what it took him to do uh, uh, that day and to get that story out to the world was just uh, unimaginable, really. Uh,
0: he was yeah. a very brave man, but also very clever. I mean, as in, he f- was focused on getting a result, and uh, he worked out a practical plan to do it.
4: Yeah. Well, his story was um, was Morse code tapped back by the uh, Japanese correspondent. When Bircher got out of the train on, on arrival at 2 a.m. in the morning, Having rehearsed a Japanese phrase, he didn't want to say, is this a Hiroshima, outright, because he knew that that would be an execution for him because it would be almost like an American military uniform. He was laughing at their sort of um, <coughs> at their tragedy and, uh, and, and disaster of the bomb drop. So he would ask this indirect phrase, what is the name of the station? Every train station he came to, eventually at 2 a.m. in the morning, the word came out, Hiroshima. And so he just threw his kit bag out the window didn 't even go to the back of the train and jumped out the window and It was in this stark uh, bombed out um, twisted metal and no glass panels It's like one of those old European stations that they uh, had you know sort of like a, a a big semicircle at the top of it except this was all shattered and nothing hardly standing. He was immediately arrested and taken to the to the police station uh, and the next morning a Japanese journalist came around to visit him in his cell to ask him what he was doing to check out his bona fides. And Bircher told him he'd come as a, as a human to see, and as a journalist, to try and see what a atomic bomb does to people. And so the journalist befriended him and helped him get the story out after Bircher toured the city, and he and he tapped it out by Morse code, not knowing whether the line between Tokyo and Hiroshima was still standing because there'd been bombings fire bombings of Japan from months leading up to uh, the the bombing of hiroshima and um, and they didn't know whether that story would even go out or not. had asked a Japanese PR colonel who sorry an American PR colonel who flew in, in a dc three from from straight from Washington with the with the American uh, uh, press uh, detachment or press um, group uh, whether at the White House, uh, whether he could get a lift back with them to Tokyo uh, to file his story, and the PR Colonel who was pissed off that un unembedded had somehow either got to Hiroshima and had uh, not obeyed General MacArthur's orders that um, to go to the U.S. battleship Missouri and be embedded with all the others, you can see any through all this. The Americans learned from Vietnam to embed the journalists like they did in World War Two, and like they did. After, uh, after Vietnam in Iraq and Afghanistan, and so on, so that stories of what Birchett was getting out couldn 't possibly get out anyway, back to the main main story of this interview. Birchett asked the American power colonel directly from Washington uh, with the other media if he could get a lift out and the, and, the, and the power colonel pissed off with Birchett uh, being there and getting the story. Uh, said, no, we can't, we haven't got any room for you. And Bertrand then said, but you must be light on with fuel, you've used all that fuel to get from Washington over here. And I'll, I'll stand up, I don't mind like that. And, and uh, in those days, you didn't have to have a seatbelt to fly on planes, any. Anyway, <laughs> the PR colonel said, no. I'm sorry, there's no room for you. So Birch was then put in a frenzy, having risked his neck to get to Hiroshima and get the scoop of the of, of the story and wanted to get it out. He then had to to find his way and hitch back to to um to Tokyo uh, on on the train to get there. And um yeah, uh,
0: the, and society, when, when you were with him and you went back to Hiroshima. Did you gain any understanding of his uh, sense of strangeness between the past and the present?
4: Um, Well, I think the whole trip was a pretty sort of um, uh, uh, striking um, watershed for Wilfred and for me because we went to Cambodia and it was um, just after the killing fields was coming out. It was well before... Um, any Western journalist uh, had really gotten in to tell that story. It was um, 1981, you know, and the Vietnamese had kept it after they invaded Cambodia to do the dirty work that the rest of the world wasn't prepared to do and and, and, and cleaning out the, the Khmer Rouge. Um, we were seeing fields of, of bones and skeletons uh, sticking up out of the ground after it had rained and whatever, you know, and uh, birch had was coming to terms with that because he'd supported the 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 cause of um of international socialism and uh, he'd supported um you know sort of Cambodia's right to free determination as as with um Vietnam and uh, and and so on to have a, have proper elections that were had been promised before the Americans got involved and so on and um so through Birch in disarray that whole sort of uh, conflict that you know, a party that called itself Socialist or or communist, and had the ideals of every every man and woman and child at, at the core of it. Supposedly, had had done what they'd done in Cambodia, and um, and uh, I think you know, Birchett in going to Hiroshima, that was it. It dealt with that sort of um, you know, forty years or less beforehand, and so it was just for the sake of the film. But what we were seeing on the ground in being in Vietnam and Cambodia, and we were ambushed in Cambodia. They wanted to kill, some faction wanted to, to kill Birchard, and our van was, um, you know, had you know, rockets and bullets fired at it, and six bullets went through the, the, the van. If the rocket had hit it, we would have gone up. We wouldn't been doing this interview now because we had a weak supply of petrol, because there weren't petrol pumps. It was, Cambodia was just coming up off its knees out of the out of the Khmer Rouge nightmare in dark ages and uh, we carried all the petrol we needed with us and the driver got shot through the through the cheeks from one side to the other and he kept on driving and uh, we sort of um, managed to escape that one and um, we filmed the that as well, the aftermath after the immediate sort of ambush I was uh, on the floor, uh, you know, sort of cowering for cover as we were sort of strafed with machine gun fire and, um, and light automatics.
0: Now, you, you're a sucker for punishment because you later went on to uh, go to Nicaragua no passeran with uh, a film you made in 1984.
4: So... Yeah, well, it was part of my politics and uh, my activist filmmaking on hindsight that um, drove me and a desire to to get out of boring mainstream politics in Australia where it didn't look like, and it still doesn't, that we're ever going to have any sort of uh, revolution, in inverted commas, that uh, we, as an, uh, that I grew up with in my university era, of uh, being at the ANU, where I was very involved in radical politics and leftist um, sort of um, demonstrations and so on. And so, uh, Latin America provided me with the opportunity to see a, a people, Nicaragua in particular, uh, that were fighting for their their future and their kids' rights to have. And education and um and and health and 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 so on and uh, not be killed for the crime of being a young person stepping out into the street by a fascist samosa the dictator's national guard and i found that very exciting i found it uh intoxicating as the word to be involved with other internationalists people from the states and europe and uh and australians who had gone over there to pick coffee to help the revolution or to teach kids English or other things, or to be doctors in the front lines and so on. It was like the Spanish Civil War was for people like George Orwell and um, and Ernest um, Hemingway and so on for me. Uh, and I really... I, and my camera was my, my rifle, My, and I often wondered at the time and since, what would I have done if the uh, Americans had invaded Nicaragua as they did a couple of years later in Granada if there'd been marines parachuting out of the skies would i have filmed it with my camera which i probably would have or would i have um picked up a rifle and and shot at these you know bastards really that were sort of stopping on our beloved nicaraguan revolution which uh it was really such a a wonderful experience and a a genuine flowering of people's power and and what the people of nicaragua were doing and prepared to lay down their lives to, to realize and um, uh, that, that was a, a really um, a tragedy when that revolution was crushed yet again by the Americans and uh, and all the dirty tricks that they pulled out Wall Street and Co to, uh, to make that revolution that beautiful little flower uh, be squashed underfoot.
0: Waging peace. The latest film from legendary Australian filmmaker David Bradbury. Shot at the Canberra 2014 Peace Convergence. To the people of Iraq, Waging Peace will be screening at the be. Nova Cinema, including Q&A with Bradbury, Thursday, March the 19th at 6pm. Bookings, trybooking.com. Waging Peace, March 19th, 6pm at Nova Cinema. A Wacker event. Wacker is a 3CR supporter. And if you're wondering what WACA is, it's the Whistleblower and Citizens Alliance and it's set in Melbourne, it's centred in Melbourne and uh, they are renowned for coming up with uh, uh, interesting and provocative uh, demonstrations to raise awareness. A uh, recent uh, 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 action was at the Altona Air Show where uh, they were protesting the uh, use of a arms show as a uh, being advertised uh, as a um, fun day for your bring your children a fun day down at the um, show uh, that we've been listening to an interview I did with uh, David Bradbury filmmaker who and focusing on his his film Enemy Number One which was a film that profiled the uh, extraordinary Australian journalist uh, Wilfred Burchett who was a uh, shining light of uh, independent journalism during the uh, last century, which is a very funny thing to say, isn't it? The last century, since we're in the early part of the next century. Uh, We're uh, cruising up to eight o'clock and uh, we'll be listening to uh, uh, young Marcus Harrington's report on rank and file in Two Shakes of a Lamb's Tale. But uh, let's uh, hear more about uh, things that are happening and doing at 3CR.
1: VCR are
0: selling Kafir Palestinian scarves in support of the last factory that produces them in Hebron, Palestine. All profits will be donated to the reconstruction efforts in Gaza and support Palestinian industry. Just 25 bucks each. These are traditional scarves available in red and black, or you can choose from a modern design. Go to 3cr.org.au slash shop to buy online or drop into the station during business hours.
4: All your promises have been broken Just
3: like I'm Jermaine Greer, and you're listening to 3CR Treaty Now.
2: And welcome to another edition of Rank and File Radio on Community Radio 3CR in the Solidarity Breakfast time slot on 3CR 855 on the AM dial. I am the presenter of the program, Marcus Harrington. On today's edition of Rank and File Radio, so go up to Queensland where we will look at a fatality which occurred in the mining industry through the week. And now we go up to Queensland where we're joined by Stephen Smythe from the CFMEU Mining and Energy Division of the Union uh, to report on a tragic event that occurred through the week. Uh, welcome to 3CR, Steve. Under what must be uh, difficult circumstances for yourself, the officials and the members of the CFMEU. Certainly is, mate. Um, you know,
6: any fatality that, that we have, um, particularly in the mining industries, um, has a ripple effect throughout throughout the entire industry, and particularly for the... Workers who work in the industry and their families and the communities which um, surround these, these mining towns in Queensland.
2: Okay, and one, was one of your comrades who arrived for work on Thursday, March the twelfth, uh, just a couple of days ago. Yet this uh, worker never made it home.
6: No, he didn't, mate. You know, unfortunately, it's another uh, tragic uh, loss of life. You know, we, we and unfortunately we we've seen an increase in, in these these accidents occurring. You know, this is our fourth fatal accident in the last 12 months um, of, of workers have simply turned up to work never to go home to their family and friends and um, you know it, it, it's it's got to stop and um, you know there's there's, there's people have actually got to start taking um, or making the, the, the right decisions and, and and I say that by not saying at all that anyone's to any individuals to blame for any of this yep. but um, you know there's a lot of pressure on people in the workplace to and particularly a lot of pressure being put on people in the workplace by by, by relevant supervisors and, and, and companies um, with wanting to achieve their bottom line of, of, of profits. Profits, sorry, over, uh, at any cost.
2: Okay. And uh, what site did this uh, event take place at?
6: This This was at um, a coal an open cut coal mine in Central Queensland near okay. near Blackwater, the mine. Blackwater mine. is owned by BHP Coal. Okay. Um, and you know, as I said, this is the fourth fatality in 12 months. The last three fatalities, uh, one being not more than three weeks ago, have all been at Anglo coal mines, um, also based in Central Queensland. So, unfortunately, in, in, in these small mining communities which surround these mines, um, there's been a, a lot of a loss of a uh, life, which has you now has that ripple effect throughout the community, particularly for the family and friends.
2: OK, and you mentioned before the workers were being uh, pushed to unrealistic limits in their work. Um, no doubt there's safety reps on, on the ground that have attempted to, to resolve this, but uh, I suppose uh, BHP obviously have no regard for its workers.
6: No, it doesn't. Yeah, you know, I mean, what we're seeing is, is with, um, as the employers like to tell us, at the press market, um, you know, the cutting costs, um, you know, and, and, and we're seeing an influx of, unfortunately... What we call in the mining industry casual workers or supplementary labour and contractors yep. who who are being put in certain positions that the permanent workers wouldn't, because unfortunately these workers have limited rights. Mm-hmm. Um, employers see these workers as, as um, able as very flexible and being able to do things because they always hang hang over their head the fact that if you want to want to work here. This is what you got to do. Now these matters will be investigated um, okay. premature to, to obviously from us to say what caused them but I can tell you generally the state of the industry as we speak is there's a lot of pressure on these people to um, undertake tasks that the, you know, the permanent workers wouldn't and um, you know that's right across the coal mining industry as, as we speak and you know, we have safety reps um, their job unfortunately is, is one that's been um, very very um, busy Um, let alone these fatal accidents, the number of serious accidents and the number of incidents that they've got
2: to attend. Okay, and the casualisation crisis is one that's uh, gripped this country and uh, workers from every industry are affected by it. Uh, Nearly half the workers in the country are placed in this insecure form of casualisation. Many of them, to get a a shift the next day or the next week to keep their job, Uh, they're basically forced into a situation where... They, in many times, forced to uh, produce unsafe work practices in order to get the shift uh, the next day, as you've already uh, alluded to.
6: Yeah, that, that's exactly right, mate. That's what. That's exactly what's happening, particularly in coal. I would say that you know we're, we're looking at, in the current status of the industry, anywhere from thirty to forty percent um, would be in that casual contractor slash role. Um, companies seem as expendable. Companies know they have little rights. Um, we're nearly getting back to the day of the contract contract days where you line up at the front gate and they'll say, We'll have you today, you tomorrow. Yep. Um these guys are employed on an hourly basis, guys and girls. Okay. Um and they they know, I mean the employer knows if they raise anything, they're gone. Um and, and we see it, unfortunately we see it every day of the week and you know, um it then what what worries us clearly is this health and safety related aspects to it where they they really feel they don't have a right. So, you now our safety officers do a tremendous job working to deal with matters on behalf of all, all workers, um, but, but they come up against these obstacles put in place by the employer when they actually want to treat these casual and labour hire... Sorry, casuals and contractors as a second-class citizen as well. So, yeah, you're right, it's, it's a cancer. It's a real cancer, this casualisation. And, you know, it, it, it's, if you look at the trend of the industry since, since we've had a, the industry started to downturn and, and, and back off, we've seen a massive increase, unfortunately, in the number of incidents, accidents and fatal
2: fatal ones. OK, will there be a campaign uh, by the union to reverse this situ- situation of casualisation and in turn hopefully uh, create uh, safer workplaces in the mine, mining industry?
6: Certainly, there's a couple of components to it. One clearly is, is we need a, a change in legislation. I mean, that's at a federal level. Um, we need the laws to change... Now, which, which encourage, in my eyes, in my view, encourage the, the casualisation of these industries. Okay. Um, we need we need to do it also through the, the agreements we have in place, the certified agreements we negotiate with the employers. And we need people to understand um, and, and understand the importance of, of having a permanent job, having respect and dignity, but also having security of, of, of safety on the job. Um, and, and we'll continue... To, to run our campaign of um, Stand Up, Speak Out, Come Home, because I think it's more relevant in the current situation we're in than ever before in, in my 27 years in the mining industry now, because I don't care if you're a labour hire worker or a permanent worker. that That's what everyone wants to do, out a work and come home, and, and I, it's really important that we start taking that stance at every level.
2: And that's right. It should be a basic right that uh, workers should arrive home in the same condition they uh, reported for work that morning at this latest uh fatality i mean another worker who doesn't go home to his family
6: that that, that that's certainly right and the other the, the other fact is that this worker will live in a small mining community and the ripple effect of of a, of a fatality like this devastates both his friends and family in the workplace yep. then in the community and then generally across the mining community as a whole because they're close knit communities so um, it, it certainly does, and you know it, it does have that effect. And yeah, you know, well, he went to work and hasn't come home. You know, and we, we, we've got to ensure that we're providing safe workplaces. And it's up to the coal companies yep. and the regulator, the government, to ensure this as well. Not, not just you know sit back and, and, and do little about it. Because unfortunately, that's they've got to take their own um, blame in, in this whole unfortunate situation.
2: OK, what is the uh, response from BHP and the regulator? What's their response in relation to this uh, fatality at Blackwater?
6: At this stage, um, the company's, as I understand, it, talking to safety guys, the company's been um, uh, assisting. Um, we haven't been obstructed, unlike some previous accidents we've okay. attended with the Anglo company. So, The regulator is out there doing their role. It's um, early days. We'll, we'll wait and see what actually transpires over the coming... Um, coming week or so with this one, but um, all we can say is we just want them to be open and transparent. So much to ask.
2: Okay, and there's been a spate of deaths in this uh, last year up in Queensland, but uh, over the last uh, decade and a half, too many Queensland mine workers have lost their lives. There's been yet more.
6: Yeah, it's, now it, 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 it's And we're talking about the direct ones that unfortunately get directly killed in the workplace. We've also had numerous numbers of, of, of workers who have been killed on their way to or from work, and the other often in the room that people don't want to accept is the number of workers who who have suffered mental health issues and have taken their own lives because of pressures in the workplace you now that's that's the other one as well I've never seen such a work, a work when I say a workplace in a community in the last five or so years where we, we, we're just seeing it day after day week after week yeah um, you know, you know people, as I said you know it's, it's sort of some diff- three different components. It's in the workplace, it's on the way to and from work, and then it's the effect of work um, back back with those workers. So, yeah, you know, it, um, something's got to be done, seriously.
2: And it's an issue we've covered um, extensively on this program uh, in the fly-in, fly-out uh, yeah. model of work, the amount of workers in that industry uh, taking their life. Does your union cover those workers as well?
6: Yeah, we certainly do. We, we have a lot of FIFO members, um, and you know, we... We, we do a lot with them in that space, um, particularly in Queensland in the mining industry. FIFO is relatively new in, in the aspect of the last four or five years. We've actually had these o, FIFO only compulsory operations. Um, but there's a huge turnover in those operations. But also, um, we're, we're looking at different options, um, particularly the mining union. Okay. Um, with, similar to what construction done with mates and construction, mates and mining. You know, we, we've got to start addressing these, these mental health issues and the issues people have.
2: And that's right, and uh, oftentimes, uh, particularly male workers, find it hard to talk to their workmates when they are maybe feeling a bit down. I mean, that's something that's got to be rectified. Sure. Yeah, it certainly does,
6: you have know? got to be able to go to your mate, you know, and have that conversation, it's wrong, yeah. Okay. Um, and, you know, well, so there is a lot that needs to be done in that space for sure.
2: OK, how can uh, listeners get behind the stand-up, uh, speak-up, come-home Yep.
6: Well, I can do it. With, we, we have plenty of um, obviously through social media. There's a lot going on in the social media space okay. with these campaigns, both uh, nationally with the CFMEU and every division, and, and then within each division within a, a state. Um, we have plenty of um, literature along the line, you know, plenty of true sto- stories, unfortunately, of people who have been affected by, by fatalities or serious accidents in the workplace. Um, We've got simple things like posters and campaigns ongoing. So you know, I, I encourage everybody um, to be involved or get involved. Um, even visit, simply visit our social media sites to look at the campaigns. You know, and I said one is is a uh, people in, in the workplace getting engaged with simply putting a sticker on your helmet. Yeah, you know, nice. you don't speak out, come home, give, giving that commitment because you're giving that commitment on behalf of yourself, your workmates, and your family. So. There's stuff that can be done. It's a simple campaign, but it's one I encourage everyone to get behind.
2: And then on April uh, 28, uh, workers around the country will stop work to commemorate uh, Workers' Memorial Day. And again, there's uh, one more worker that we have to mourn the loss yeah, of. that's
6: correct. That's correct. Yeah. Yeah. We, we, every, every union, every worker should get behind that as well. You know, it's, it's, it's what people need to, you know, um, understand. Yeah. It's, it's an important day. And unfortunately, to remember those who have lost their lives or been seriously injured.
2: OK, and I'm sure your union will uh, keep the fight up to continue the fight so the workers do arrive home safely.
6: We certainly will, mate. You know, that's our number one aim. You know, we, we, the Mining Energy Division in Queensland is over 100 year old and um, we've been fighting for health and safety since the commencement of our, our union and we'll continue to do that, you know, in the workplace. And so we encourage every worker, you know, to, to yep. make that stance. You know, we, have, we take positions, particularly in relation to, to the White Ribbon Days, um Which we support 100% as well, is no similar to what we need to do in the workplace now is um, give that commitment to stand up, speak out, and come home. You're doing it for you and your family.
2: Okay, uh, thanks for your time this morning, uh, Steve, on Community Radio 3CR.
6: No problem. Thank you. I appreciate the
2: opportunity. And that was Stephen Smythe from the CFMEU Mining and Energy Union in Queensland, and I've been the presenter of the program, Marcus Harrington, on Rank and File Radio on 3CR 855 AM. Mm-hmm.
0: Right a big march last night down in Melbourne, down outside the National Gallery of Victoria, where uh, our illustrious leader, uh, Prime Minister Abbott, was uh, dining. And uh, this is in response to uh, his uh, forced closure of Western Australian communities for Aboriginal people. And it was a large... Uh, Uh, Rally that was uh, almost like a pop up rally, as it were, because it was uh, only discovered that that was where he would be at the time uh, very shortly before. Now, um, if you haven't caught up with this, it has been six months since the federal government signed over funding responsibility for providing municipal and essential services to Western Australia's 274 remote Indigenous communities to the state government and four since the Western Australian Premier Colin Barnett said between 100 and 150 of those communities face closure because they were not viable. On Tuesday, Tony Abbott further inflamed the situation by saying his government could not be expected to endlessly subsidise lifestyle choices if those lifestyle choices are not conclusive to, conducive to the kind of full participation in an Australian society that everyone should have. In Western Australia, Indigenous people still don't know which communities are going to be closed, what criteria they will be judged by and what they can do to stop it. All they know is that the government is trying to push them off their land once again. And it's interesting that it's reported in Guardian.com on March the 11th, there are three small communities within 30 kilometres of each other in the Kimberley, the isolated northwestern corner of Australia. Because of a new funding deal struck between the Australian state and federal governments, two of these communities could be closed. Two of the communities are Aboriginal, the third is not. It will not be closed. You're on 3CR with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast.
6: (laughs)
0: 3CR Breakfast Radio meets the people. Check
3: out the real so come along to 3 cr Sustainable Breakfast Series, broadcast live from Friends of the Earth Food Co-op.
0: Join us for breakfast tasties at Friends of the Earth Cafe, 312 Smith Street, Collingwood, or tune in to 3CR to hear what people are doing in the area of sustainability.
3: From Monday, March 23rd to Friday, March 27th, Starts at 7am and goes through till 8.30am. So
6: if you're down on Smith Street, any of the mornings, come down, watch a live show. Every show will have a musician and it's a fantastic initiative by 3CR and
3: Friends of the Earth. Supported by Yarra Council.
0: Now we're cruising to hear what uh, Kevin, the man, says about the week that was.
1: A weak solidarity brekkie team listener when, as if big supremo tiny a bit more for the bosses than Attorney General George Brandy's brain, didn't have enough troubles trying to find a job for that unpatriotic Human Rights Commissioner Gillian Triggs, who rebelliously, heinously reported the truth... Now they have to find a bloody job for the entire UN of the US, of the UN of the World Human Rights lot, who also unpatriotically raise the odd question about our humane treatment of no proper papers queue-jumping illegal boat people. These people have no right to interfere in our affairs. Tiny was forced to interrupt the an announcement that we will be exercising our right to send more trained killers to trained kill in the Middle East. Tiny also came under some pressure over comments about the Terranullius people, suggesting they choose their own luxurious lifestyles and the government isn't into subsidising luxurious lifestyle choices. No, seriously, his threat that they couldn't expect government support if they stayed on their traditional land shouldn't worry them one inch. They won't notice the difference. Tiny didn't think that one through too well. But his points valid government has no role supporting the lifestyles of the poor and infamous it's a merry-go-round really drag people off their land and tell them they must go to a mission or reserve or both then tell them they're lowering the christian tone of the place drift back to traditional lands then told they must move again to a regional town then told they're lowering the respectable tone of the town then back discovering what facilities they had have been destroyed. A resource company, an agricultural giant, now occupying their land, but promising it can move rock art and artefacts quite safely and guarantee their activities will have only a minimum effect on the environment. It's in your own interests, although we'll also have to move you. You have no right to trespass on our land, and if you insist on trespassing... What do you mean it's your land? Uh, have you got a title? Could you produce a title? <laughs> well, that proves you have no right whatever to be on our land. Although, Gina Wronghart chipped in here, perhaps I can help you. Out of the goodness of my heart, I'm prepared to offer you work on my land, and I'm prepared to pay you happy, happy people up to $2 a day. Gina pointed out she would love to pay more, but simply couldn't afford it. So crushing were government costs on great troublem- Aussies of initiative like her. True, as the, this is true, as the price of iron ore plummets just as her Roy Hill mine on traditional Pilbara land is nearing completion, Gina assured us her problems have nothing to do with a bad business decision with market forces, laissez-faire and all that. The blame lies fairly and squarely with the public purse. What affects the project is high costs. As I have said so many times, it is really important government cost burdens are lowered. Governments need to take regulatory costs seriously. They have to cut these government cost burdens because our costs are incredible. Doesn't our heart go out to her, and and why have environmental regulations at all when you're out in the wilds, and what do they matter, especially as as they're just a lay cover to make people believe the government cares about the environment when the projects are all approved anyway? Exactly. My thoughts exactly. Do you want a job? Two dollars a day. I pointed out to Gina that Joe Hackey, the workers tells me I've got to wait another nine years, but thanks for the offer. Speaking of another highly respectable body which knows what's good for all of us, the Troubluwazi Human Resources Profits Institute attacked the fair work Troubluwazi, no longer work choices, just looks like an act, for increasing costs for poor, beleaguered, caring employers and tells us we'll all be better off with individual agreements subject to minimum standards, of course, without evil union involvement non-union collective deals would increase workplace fairness and equity. And God knows poor caring employers need fairness and equity, and when unions get involved in industrial relations where they have no right to be interfering in the individual rights of workers, they make it so much more difficult for poor caring employers to achieve fairness and equity. The depth of union evil has no limits, does it? And and yet caring employers bend over backwards, to be fair. We are not anti-union, they state the obvious. We believe unions have a role to play, but we must object to them getting involved in the workplace where they have no right to be. Indeed, a former caring employer representative appointed by the little bald-headed bloke who used to be big supremo in the last very dark ages to the Industrial Commission, Brendan McCarvey, the workers, says wages and conditions – minimum wage, penalty rates, minimum shifts, etc. – should be removed from the Fair Work Troublu Aussie no longer Commission and decided by Parliament, because the Fair Work just looks like it commissioners lack economic expertise. I, of course, brought economic expertise to the Commission, but many of its biased Commissioners have evil trade union backgrounds as organisers or legal rec- representatives. Uh, thus, Maccabi the Workers says only economic giants like Joe Hackey the Workers and Tidy himself and Erica Betts on the Bosses et al. Well, that side of the house have the expertise to understand what workers want and balance that with the economic needs of the caring employers. Wages, he pointed out, are an impediment to profits, which in turn benefit all of us, including those workers who then are compensated for no take-home pay with an improved social wage. Uh, But but the government says we must slash the social wage, because existing wages are crippling the economy. Uh, Can you explain that? That puerile question confirms my opinion about people like you having no economic expertise. And how appropriate. What better way to celebrate the 50th anniversary of the Selma March than yet another black shot by a white sorry, a copper, and don't panic, the rule he has no case to answer, so it fits in perfectly with the anniversary as they ruled the cop in Ferguson had no case to answer. He was just racist, doing what racists do. Perhaps Michael Brown, unarmed, hands in the air, back to the copper, shot himself. There were reports that last week's hero of Capitol Hill, Zion, Big Supremo, Benjamin, not another Yahoo, has abandoned the two-state solution. I accept the only realistic solution is a one-state solution. One state for us and no state for them. This local Zion spokesperson was given her very own column in Monday's Lord Rupert of Wapping, Sin by Lord Rupert to disclaim that the lack of reconstruction in raised gas and not being raised had anything to do with Zion blockading the joint. The blame lay fairly and squarely with Hamas, because Hamas is terrorism personified, and Zion is liberty, freedom, and democracy personified. She didn't tell us how come the place needed reconstruction, how it got destroyed in the first place, but following her argument, it obviously had nothing to do with Zion. And as we said last week, it's a waste of time anyway. Every time they get a bit of Reconstruction going, whoever does bomb the proverbial out of them comes back yet again and bombs the proverbial out of them. And the respectable lovers of freedom, like the US but Zion and True Blue Aussie flapping on the coattails, praise the restraint of whoever it is who bombs the proverbial out of them and says they've only got themselves to blame because they insist on Reconstruction. On bombs, well, planes anyway, this international air transport mob says 2014 was one of the safest ever for aviation. Just thinking back, I'd hate to see what they'd call a bad year. Related to that, through all the controversy about Tidy bestowing a knighthood on that Her Most Gracious Majesty's nonagenarian moron, little coverage of the other knighthood. Former big train killer Angus, sorry, Sir Angus, you them son, placed in charge of finding that missing Malaysian airliner, knighted presumably for services to failure. The Lord Rupert of Sin acknowledged International Women's Day with a story back on P26, just this side of the sports pages, and their subjects, five women are coppers, and the great job they're doing protecting capitalist law. Well, I suppose they at least mentioned it, I just thought they might have picked some better examples. Finally, notice Joe Haggy the Workers is suing the Falfax Media Empire for defamation, with former rabid socialist Big Supremo Nuclear Hawk himself as his senior adviser and character witness. Not sure that's so smart. Over a headline and story suggesting he was for sale. Far be it for me to offer his very expensive silk and legal team advice on presenting his case, but. Surely he's on a winner by pointing out there's no way he could be for sale. After all, he's not worth two bob. Good morning.
6: You're listening to Radio 3CR, and I am Associate Professor in History Claire Wright. I'm so excited, and I just
3: can't hide it. Hey Jodie, I'm so excited, I just can't hide it. Oh, just in the words of the Pointer Sisters, hey? Why was that be? The new 3CR t-shirts are coming out. We had a competition, Kate Reed won it, and it's so Whoa. beautiful. It's got roses and a love heart, and then the caption is, Resistance is Fertile. Oh, too deadly that, day. Eh? So in order to get one, go yeah. to the 3CR website and follow the link to shop, and they're $30. It's $30? Oh, yeah. what a bargain. And $25 for kids. You'll be able to secure one for yourself because they're in hot demand. Yay, get one now.
0: You're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie on three CR eight double five on the AM dial and uh, streaming and or podcast. You can get us by podcast. Uh, the uh, we're going to now have a chat with uh, Noah Noah Basil who has just recently returned from London. We're going to get a few of his, his reflections about the uh, world in general from the position of the other side of the world. So without any further ado.
5: Oh, it's great to be back, Annie. Um, Happy New Year. I know we're in March, but uh, it's really the first time we've spoken properly uh, in 2015.
0: And uh, you've been off uh, to England, haven't you? London.
5: I have. um, To see the Queen? Not quite. I did go to Buckingham Palace for the first time, but I went to see an exhibition in the Queen's Gallery of photos that were taken during uh, Prince someone's visit to the Middle East in 18, in the 1860s, uh, which were really telling because, again, there was a lot of insight into how the British saw themselves compared to what were soon to become their colonial subjects and how readily they saw themselves i guess as part of a pioneering generation that were out to discover the world and that came through in some of the literature that was attached to these uh, photos as if these places were somehow newly discovered by the world only 150 years ago you know these ancient cultures and civilizations but um yeah it was fascinating one of the things i really engaged myself with was a lot of The discussions around European politics, because of course we're here a little bit detached from it. And whilst we might get it in the news from time to time, actually seeing it play out, especially the racist politics that I think are really now starting to emerge quite clearly. Countries like UK with UKIP and France with the Le Pen's, and then Holland. You know that this this undercurrent of uh, the sort of new racist political orientation was really disturbing, but also interesting to sort of experience firsthand.
0: Do you think that the use of anti-immigration policy and racist elements are still being used to explain away difficult situations, economic situations? Um, I, uh, yes,
5: absolutely. I mean, UKIP is definitely, I think, a party that has used the economic crisis of, of the uh, sort of lower and middle class in the uk as a way of creating a, a sort of a, a world view they say they're not a racist party they say they're a nationalist one but of course we know from our own experience of this you know 20 years ago with uh one nation that the notion of nationalism is a thin veneer for a racist world view it's interesting to see that so i mean a lot of what ukip argue about migrants is that they are a drain on the economy well in fact as many economists have argued the migrants actually play a large part in fulfilling some of the key elements of the neoliberal program one of the reasons that the major parties can never really be as openly anti-migration as these fringe parties even though those fringe parties in a way serve the interests of the major conservative parties in particular um, as one nation did here for howard You know, he very quickly worked some elements of the One Nation program into his own policy.
0: I've always thought that One Nation was by the Liberals hoping that uh, it would split the reactionary racist working class vote, but actually it backfired on them.
5: It did in the short term, but Howard was very Machiavellian. As we saw in the late 90s in particular, One Nation almost became redundant because of the way that Howard Picked up on that sentiment and translated into liberal policy without using the same sort of language. And the thing about it is that be- these are very populist issues that usually resonate with people who are marginalised, uh, as your question implies, marginalised and feel alienated by the new economic system, which they see very much as favouring incomers.
0: Oh upwards. well, yeah, they're feeling upset. Yeah. You know, they yeah,
5: absolutely. But, of course, the real beneficiaries of neoliberalism and the cheap labour that migrants bring are large corporations and the comprador class that work for them, in particular the managerial class who earn huge salaries ensuring that everyone else's wage labour is kept to a bare minimum. But, of course, they never become the target of those disgruntled masses. Usually they don't become the target because the... Parties like UKIP and the Tories and our own Liberal Party here are able to deflect the, as you said, to some extent, deflect the anger towards people who they consider to be foreign or the real drain on economic prosperity. I mean, UK is quite interesting, of course, because it has a much longer... I tend to think that it's easier for racist parties to gain traction in Australia than it is in the UK, from what I can tell. And I think UKIP will be a very, very fringe party, whereas here in Australia, the Liberals have mainstreamed uh, that same rhetoric in its in its policies and its rhetoric over the last, you know, sort of decade or two, since Tampa, really. Yeah, this unseemly
0: but, attack on refugees.
5: Absolutely. Um, but not just refugees. I mean, you know, the, the sort of Islamophobia. I read, you know, like many people that sort of with horror, Abbott's, Uh, sort of description of rural Indigenous communities as lifestyle choices. I know. Yeah. um,
2: That's
5: shocking. Yes, but this this will gain traction with that populist alienated class who will say, well, why the hell should they be funded to have, you know, a school or a medical clinic when, you know, we can't get those same resources for us. Or
0: I mean, it's extraordinary. The amount of money that's actually going to maintain those uh, communities is miserable. A tiny, small amount of money. Of,
5: of, of course. And the investment in any social services is tiny and miserable these days. But of course, in the eyes of the hard-working, uh, especially white, working class of Australia, and I don't want to single them out because, in fact, historically, the working class in Australia have also been on the front line of anti-racism uh, movements as well so you know there is very much a complexity around this issue about which class is the most racist and to some of the scholarship that suggests that in fact racism is an elite concept that actually filters down and in many ways uh, is really a proposition that has uh, historically been very much resisted by the working class who uh, in in many historically at least up until the 1980s often found unity in their working class identity before often as much as if not more so than their uh, ethnic or racial or religious identities
0: mm, it's interesting we'll have to go back to this issue and i'm going yeah. to seek interview regarding uh, the removal of people from their communities in uh, Western Australia, South Day, because I actually think it's more connected to uh, bearing the land, so that uh, corporations can go in and suck up anything that's under the ground without sure, any witness.
5: Never, I, I agree, but the reality is you can't say that's what you want to do. If, oh if no, that's what you want to do. So you've got to find a justification, and the justification in our current climate is is one of you know individual choice, taxpayer money you know the individual before the community you know all those sort of yes. what liberals have done over the last 2 years is bring all those arguments to their as justifications for why they need to cut medicare or yes. you know so yes. it's that trope which still that's the neoliberal trope which i think has less traction in the in europe than it does here
0: were you there when the uh, money laundering scandal regarding the hsbc bank uh started. was, yes. Can you yes, give us uh, a bit of an idea of how that played out in the public sense?
5: What was interesting was the response. Of course, the Tories distanced themselves from it and said it's a few bad apples and it's not indicative of how we or business operate. Both the sort of mainstream media and the Labor Party saw this as an opportunity to start to think about bigger issues around taxation, distribution of wealth, and they're the real, I mean, this will be interesting in the upcoming election in May in the UK, whether these are the things that actually lead to a Labour victory or whether in fact the sort of ideas around economic growth and, and free market and neoliberalism and individual choice, which are really what the Tories push, will dominate. Um, and that's, I think, what this election, again, I think we're seeing clear demarcation on some issue, economic issues between left and right of politics in the UK. I think we've also seen it here as well, not so much in the structure or the systemic nature of the economy in Australia, but how the government sees its role in dealing with the with it itself as a mechanism of redistribution or not. I think that's interesting because for a number of years a lot of people said, well, what is the difference between, on, on a number of issues, what's the difference between Labor and the Liberals? Yes. And I think one of the things that kept Labor in the dark for much of the Howard years was its inability to differentiate itself. And, I mean, Rudd succeeded because he presented himself as a pale imitation of John Howard, a safe pair of hands.
0: Yeah, I think he even um, physically looked that way. That was always my yes, argument.
5: Yes. Yeah, yeah, no, no, he did. He, he took on... I mean, you know, I think there was more to it than that. Of course, work choices played a huge part in the in the downfall of Howard. And I think a lot of people who historically have voted Labour were looking for a reason to vote for them again by the sort of mid-2000s. And unfortunately, Latham wasn't their reason. But Rudd came along and gave them some sense of hope. And, you know, that campaign was a very positive one about the future. Yes, I don't think it's just that he was a pale imitation, but there was a sense that Labor and Liberals were hard to differentiate. Partly that was because the hegemony of or the consensus around those key economic questions were really difficult for Labor to make an alternative argument about. And we saw that with Latham when he, you know, timidly, maybe timidly is the wrong word, he, he <laughs> argued that state funding to private schools should be reduced and that money should be redirected to state schools, and he received a flogging uh, popular media... Which is outrageous. um, Which is outrageous. And And on that
0: particular point, I always thought that they should have done a survey of journalists to find out how many of the people sent their children to public schools.
5: I think if someone made that argument today, my feeling is that that they wouldn't receive the same vitriol that Latham re- received in 2000, and because I, th- I think the climate has changed, and yeah. that that's clearly what I was seeing in England. That in fact the parameters of the discussion had changed a little bit, and in fact questions about tax and about free trade and about um, who's responsible, redistribution, yeah, I, I I think those things have have opened up a little bit more than they had you know, a few years ago, and actually speaking to people in the UK, they were saying much the same thing. And the other thing is, you know, one of the things that was clearer there than here is that socialised health is off limits to government, to governments who want to unravel it.
0: Yeah, right.
5: In the UK, the NHS is under attack, especially from the Murdoch press, who just are unrelenting in bringing up stories about how inefficient and how strained the national health services and i'm sure some of it's true but that's because of underfunding from especially from this tory government but the, the polls suggest the majority of people in the uk will not even contemplate the privatization of the health
0: system that's fantastic to hear that's really fantastic yeah. it's really um quite clear to people that this is a uh, sort of a gambit claim by uh, american health insurers i think
5: Yes, yes, I, look, I, I agree. I think that's one difference between there and here because whilst there's been anger about the co-payment, much of our health care is already at least par- partially par- privatised and not entirely, and the TPP will probably undermine the PBS from all reports. You know, I, I don't think you could have that same discussion about the TPP in the UK as... Well, sorry, it would create a lot more anger because of what it would do to the social socialised health system over there.
0: Can we go to the Islamophobia issue? I was just following the story about the person that they've dubbed, or I presume it's the tabloids have dubbed, Jihad John the young man that was supposed to be English who was involved in the beheading uh, in ISIS. There was a very interesting discussion on uh, democracy now with a man who was part of an organisation who had been in conversation with that young man since about 2009, which is quite a long time ago. This young man had actually been to Kenya, I think it was, and he was of Middle Eastern background, but born in England, this man was saying he'd been picked up by MI5 and was persistently interrogated over time. And even though he had been wanting, this young man had been wanting to go to Kuwait to start his future there, he couldn't proceed in any way because he was tagged by MI5 and all other governments saw him as a terrorist threat. Is there uh, any understanding of the way the security forces in England, for example, or the West, are actually perhaps politicising people who wouldn 't normally be politicized?
5: look there 's been a fair bit of scholarship on this I mean one of the, one of the interesting uh, studies done by an um, Iranian scholar who now works in France, which um, I think some, some of it's been translated into English, and I heard someone give a uh, sort of a, a paper on it not long ago, is that a lot of French radicalisation seems to occur in you know in his studies from alienated young youths who are out of work, haven't had good education, don't have much men You know, all that sort of typical story about even second-generation migrants who still feel completely... Gotten by their new homes the, the countries that they live in, who end up in trouble with the police and through the sort of heavy handed nature of the police, the judiciary, and then the penal system end up becoming incredibly alienated and now this is not the entire story, but this particular paper I was reading said that in a couple of initiatives that have been taken by Islamic groups in in France to rehabilitate these people through counselling and working with them and, and programs that they've inv- that the government's invested partially in, but mainly has come from social groups. They've seen incredibly positive outcomes of uh, de-radicalisation. But I remember, oh, it must have been about four or five years ago, an Afghanist journalist who came here, and she was saying how she had interviewed a number of Taliban uh, who said that They had never considered themselves Talibani until the U.S. invasion and the indiscriminate use of force uh, through drone warfare or, you know, had killed people in their family or they had been locked up without provocation and ended up in custody for no reason as suspected terrorists. And through that process, they became intensely anti-American and uh, joined the Taliban because, the Taliban was the most effective anti-American element in Afghanistan. They weren't really religious at all in the sense that the Taliban were. So there is a lot of this stuff floating around now for some time. Um, and in fact, you know, one can say that a lot of the ISIS activity is anti-government sentiment, like people who have being brutalized or have had lost family members or have been uh, completely re- sort of um, forgotten by their state, thinking to themselves, well, you know, the only way I can hit back is through joining this organisation. I mean, there's a lot of that floating around, especially in the Sunni, the, the sense of ISIS being partly a Sunni insurgency, not just a, a religious, a fundamentalist religious one. You know, I, I think there's enough of this now for us to know that there's a fairly strong reactionary element or, or a reaction in the way that radicalisation occurs.
0: I mean, England is in a quite a close proximity, really, to a range of things that are going on that are destabilising. The stuff that's going on in Russia, for example, is there a sense of unease going on in England that you noticed?
5: The Russian-Ukraine stuff, definitely, but I think that's partly, you know, there is a sense of that um, establishment attitude to the Soviet Union that's still sees russia as the villain always there is a lot of propaganda and rhetoric and you know i I think putin and his interests in ukraine are entirely geostrategic and uh, and about reclaiming sort of russian preeminence in in the area but there's also an aspect that the uprising in ukraine is partly a reaction to uh ukraine's move towards the west and that there is a significant population in ukraine that actually see themselves closely allied or aligned with Russia, so I don't think it's just a question of, you know, Russian expansionism. But of course, that's been a long uh, representation that goes back hundreds of years in Western Europe. The fear of the Russian bear, the Soviet bear, now the Russian bear again. So.
0: Do you think it's forming some sort of a narrative? I mean, in some cases, uh, you kind of sometimes wonder, are are the boss class revving up for a third world war or something?
5: I don't think so. I mean, partly because the repercussions of a third world war are very different to second world war, first world war. That is, the existence of nuclear weapons means that the, you know, the cost of going to war with another nuclear power is very different to go to war with a country that doesn't have nuclear power or capacity for it. And as North Korea rightly said in the aftermath of the Iraq war, the only thing that would have prevented the U.S. invading Iraq was if it actually did have weapons of mass destruction.
0: Yeah, that's right.
5: <laughs> um, um, and that's well why spotted. the North Koreans were, yeah, were so intent on detonating an atomic bomb because they knew the minute that they had it, the potential for reduced somewhat and the there had to be different mechanisms for dealing with North Korea than the ones they have now. And that's the same for with Iran. I mean, the reality is, you know, I don't like the fact that North Korea has and Iran might get nuclear weapons just because I'm uneasy about anyone having them. But only one country has used atomic weapons, and that country has the greatest stockpile of them. So, you know, history tells us that, you know, we should be just as fearful of U.S., not against us, but certainly the potential for the U.S. to use them, but my sense is actually no. The the days of nuclear, the fear of a nuclear holocaust, I think, fortunately, are behind us. I don't fear the Iranians having a nuclear bomb because I don't think they're mad enough or that anyone's mad enough to use nuclear weapons in this day and age. I, I, so, I, I so, do you,
0: th- so do you think that uh, business as usual contained wars to uh, generate a certain amount of uh, disharmony, which will then generate a certain amount of wealth.
5: Yes, I think there is an element of that, but I think the, uh, you know, the other thing is that the US in particular and its main allies are largely, well not largely, the US is, largely an industrial military complex. One of the things that I've been really interested in in recent years is how Israel and its politics have changed in direct correlation with the change in the economy from a uh, service and manufacturing one to a sort of high-tech security and military one and what this has meant for its relationship with, especially with Palestinians, because I think there's a direct... Uh, line between the way that the Israelis have moved from relying on cheap wage labour, hence having the Palestinians as a sort of cheap source of labour that could move from the West Bank or Gaza into Israel and perform those cheap labour duties, to an economy that's largely geared up for high-end investment, capital and security and seeing how Israel now has built a wall and it's policy towards palestinians is one of disciplining and and securitization i think you know for me there's an incredibly close connection between those elements of it and i think the u.s economy has a similar trajectory and therefore it's not surprising that the u.s is highly military geared these days because so much of its economy tends towards Uh, military and security spending Um, the other thing of course is that is a great way to redistribute wealth from the people to the wealthiest elements in any society Uh, and you can do it quite legitimately by taking taxpayers money and money that should go into social services and redirecting it into police military foreign security investment and so forth and i think that's certainly what's happened in the u.s uh, whether that was a conscious decision or whether that's fo- followed other changes in the, in the global system, and also the fact that the U.S., uh, its capacity to influence and persuade other countries peacefully has deteriorated since its invasion of Iraq, has meant that it now relies more on force and the direct threat of force to get its uh, way is there's sort of, I think, changes that have occurred simultaneously. I don't think there a, was a conspiracy to do this, but I think this is how it's played out in the last 10 years or so.
0: We'll have to leave it there because uh, we've run out of time, but uh, you'll be back in a couple of weeks so that we can f- have I a will. further chat. And we should uh, actually have a look at the paper that you were working on.
5: What I ended up writing on is looking at how Western representations of violence in the Middle East legitimate certain actions and delegitimate others.
0: Oh, I, Sorry, I look forward great. to
5: it. Thank you. So do I, Annie. Good to talk to you as always.
0: Hi, this is Liz Stringer and you're listening to The Mighty 3CR on 855 AM and digital radio, 3cr.org.au. Yes, and we've come to the end of the show. This is Sustainable Breakfast, coming signing off for the uh, this week. We, we had an interview with David Bradbury about Wilfred Burchard and his film Enemy Number 1. Uh, and uh, Rank and File reporting on uh, the latest fatality at Blackwater Open Cut in Queensland. Uh, this is the week that was always amusing, uh, followed by a chat with uh, Dr Noah Basil from Macquarie University. Uh, and we'll go out with uh, a song by Lost Animals, Say No to Thugs. And uh, coming up next is Asia Pacific Currents.